Hello, everybody, and welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore the dark and winding paths that lead around the Delmarva Peninsula. If you're new here, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. Today, we're going to be covering a very old cold case of 132 years ago, which unfortunately was never really too warm to begin with. It very, very quickly went cold soon after the events of that night. Before we get into the story, I do want to just go over a couple of things. Um, This episode might get a little long. I'm not sure how long exactly it will be until I actually get it completed. So I am going to go through some of these things a little quickly. First, content warning in that any of the episodes for this podcast, there is normally mention or discussion of events and topics that some may find distressing. So, you know, if you feel as though you may not be able to listen about these types of discussions, such as injury or death, I definitely understand but I just want everybody to be aware of what the content is um, before we start listening. Also, I will be looking through some of the folklore and urban legends of the Delmarva Peninsula and have a few picked out to go over over the next couple of weeks. I may be putting out a few shorter episodes, kind of sticking with an October theme of, you know, kind of the spooky or scary tales and even though you don't hear a lot about Delmarva urban legends, we do have some, including Chessie, the Chesapeake Bay monster, who is considered by many to be Maryland's most famous urban legend. Um, just to kind of touch base with that, there was a an Atlantic sturgeon that washed up on Assateague beach um, earlier this year. And so there was always the conjecture of, is Chessie a sturgeon? Is it a manatee? Maybe a combination of both of them as, you know, someone may mistake one or the other at different points in time to be a monster. But if you actually see the picture, it, it really does look like a monster. But it's also very intriguing to have this fish that is called a dinosaur fish by some because it's been around that long. And also some people think Nessie, Chessie's, you know, colleague over there in Scotland, might be a sturgeon as well. Along with those spooky themed shows or episodes, I will also be doing one about events that took place on Delmarva during the fall season. And it's really going to be at one event, but on different years. And you'll understand that a little bit more once I do cover that. And as always, my sources will be linked in the description of the episode. And in today's episode, I did go back to newspapers of the time in 1891, as well as some more current information that's been written about the topic. However, there was one historian, Mike Dixon, who you did a pretty thorough job in an article discussing this case, and even in one of the other you know, newer sources that I used, when I got to the credits at the end, Mike Dixon was also listed as a contributor for that report as well. So, you know, I'd like to give credit where credit is due. Mike Dixon really had a lot of information, and it was from looking at that that made me want to go back and kind of delve into the newspapers as well and cover this story. Now, the second um, article that I mentioned, the one that also used some of Mike Dixon's resources, there were a lot of pictures of the area at the time when this took place. So when I put the link in the description, I will make a note after it that that's the one that has a lot of pictures so that you can get a feel of the area and what it was like around 1891. If you would like to contribute to support the podcast, such as the subscription services that I use to go back and look at the older newspapers, or for some of the upcoming episodes, I found some books that would be interesting to read. Um, There is a link for a Buy Me a Coffee page and PayPal account if you are able or want to donate to help 
offset some of those costs. So like I said, this might be a little long, so I want to get right into the episode of the assassination of Charles W. Schultz. Now when I say assassination, I think the first thing that comes to our minds might be the assassination of a political or civil rights leader, someone who is high up in the government or in the social limelight. However, the case today was described as an assassination, as it seems so cold and calculating that this would happen. So I'd like to set the scene going back to Wilmington in the 1800s. And so I'm going back a little bit before 1891, where Wilmington became a city in 1848. Now, it was probably pretty obvious early on that Wilmington was going to be one of the biggest cities, if not the biggest city in the state, with industrialization spreading throughout basically the country and the world. Many people were moving out of the rural areas to come live in the city as there were more job opportunities and a chance for hopefully a better living and being able to better provide for your families. And to kind of offset that, there were also um, new machines that would help farmers in those rural areas produce more. While going back and looking at census numbers for Wilmington, looking at 1870, there were 30,841 residents. In 1880, there were 42,478. So about... uh, 1,050 approximately increase. And then in 1890, it jumped to 61,431, which was right around 19,000. So it was steadily growing. And with that, one would expect to have a larger police force. But at the time of these events in 1891, one crime reporter looked at the information for the city and said there were only about 40 police officers to patrol for all of those people and you know, new residents who were coming to live in the city. Also, the way that police officers were hired and fired, or some would say appoint, had been appointed or unappointed to their duties, was different from when Wilmington first became a city to the time of these events. From 1848 to 1873, during a key time of growth within Wilmington, the mayor actually held the power to appoint or get rid of officers. So this could mean that with each new mayor, you had police officers being appointed and experienced officers being let go. So this went on, you know, during the very formative years of Wilmington being a city. But by 1891, at the time of these events, that had changed. However, the mayor did hold a lot of power, as they do in most cities. And a lot of times police chiefs report directly to the mayor. So it was still kind of a department in flux you know, trying to, you know, have more experienced officers, but maybe not having some that had been there for decades because of that, you know, incoming and outgoing revolving door that may have happened near the beginning. Now, Officer Charles W. Schultz had been born in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania on September 8th, 1854. And though he did serve on the Wilmington Police Department every night, He was also a painter during the day. So what this meant is he spent his day working, painting in the mornings and throughout the day while he spent his nights patrolling the Ninth Ward. And that was the district in Wilmington that he was assigned to and would have actually been living in as well. And this really did cover a lot of the main streets, such as Market and Tattnall. And I lived up there, you know, for a while and could almost really envision some of those streets now. Um, You know, those were streets that I probably drove on or passed by at least once a day, if not more, when I lived up there. Now, Schultz was someone who was well-respected in the community. Um, People thought he was fair, but firm, and 
he really got to know everybody that was in his ward. For one thing, he worked out with everybody throughout the day and probably saw him at saw them at different jobs and really had relationships with them other than just the police officer who was walking by every hour. In one description of Officer Schultz, it was said that he was, quote, a fair and fearless officer who discharged his duties with fidelity to his profession, end quote. Now, me personally, when I look at the term fearless, I don't think that really describes Schultz. Fearless means that you just kind of approach something without necessarily knowing or weighing all of the risks, whereas I think Schultz would be considered brave. And bravery to me is when you know that there's a risk, but you still take it in order to help someone or to fulfill a duty such as he did. So I personally would like to use the term brave when looking at Officer Schultz. Now, at the time here in 1891, when we say walking the beat, it was really a much more interactive experience then, at least for those who lived in the cities. And to a large extent, it's still that way today. Instead of patrol cars, though, that we may see going about the neighborhoods today, officers of this time really had to you know, pound the shoe leather, as the saying goes. But by him living in the community, he really got to know and understand those that he served. And he also then gained an understanding of the needs of the community, but also in knowing when to be wary of something or to suspect that something was not quite right. So as he's walking along his normal route and observing things that are going on around him, he can look for things that are outside of the norms that he would expect to have in that area, such as was there activity in a store that normally didn't have activity late at night, those types of things. Now, as he walked along that cold January night, he knew he would have to keep his eyes open for suspects of unsolved crimes. At the time, there had been what was described as safe crackers who had been terrorizing the Ninth Ward and even other parts of the city. He had the description of these suspicious men, but what could he do if he saw them? Today, we would envision a police officer using his radio with an instant message back to dispatch or to other officers that they needed assistance. At the time, Wilmington was using the most up-to-date technology to try to make the streets safer. There had been lights that had been installed above most of the houses, as well as many of the pubs or bars. Also, there was the telegraph station, or you might call it a call station or signal station. I saw it listed as all of those. But basically, it was a box that the police officers would go to, and they would call in if they needed assistance. So, again, let's go back to the fact that there weren't patrol cars, meaning if someone needed help really quick, they weren't going to get there in a matter of minutes. Also, at these signal stations, an officer would need to check in at the beginning of his shift, as well as check in every hour. In what I think might be a jaded reporter, um, more recently, in an article that I read, they said it was probably to make sure that the police officers weren't sleeping on duty. However, I would like to think it was out of concern for their officers so that if they did not get a report back from a certain officer within a certain amount of time, they knew that something might be wrong and they could dispatch other patrolmen to check up on their fellow officer. The call box or signal box would also allow an officer to call for an ambulance if needed, as well as a wagon to come pick up a prisoner if he had arrested somebody. Going back to what was called a reign of terror by the newspapers leading up to this January 29, 1891, the newspapers said that there was a, quote, reign of terror as burglars, thieves, thugs, over the past two weeks had descended upon the city, end quote. Just the night before, on January 28th, 
a grocery store had been broken into. And yeah, to me, this is not safe cracking. They used explosives to blow up the safe to get to the contents inside. To me, safe cracking means, you know, like when you're watching those old TV shows where you still had the dial, the spin dial safes, where they would use a stethoscope to listen and try to hear that little click to get the numbers. To me, that's safe cracking or using some type of tools to get into it. Blowing it up was just kind of a quick and easy way of getting into the safe and getting to its contents. Also, what Schultz could not have known is earlier on the night of the 29th, there had been an armed robbery. So weapons were brandished at this robbery. And unfortunately, with having communication that was not always instant, Schultz had not known that there were armed robbers out there. So he would not have known potentially what he was up against that night. The night itself was pretty cool. And there was also a possibility of rain. And I'm always cold, so the idea of walking around outside with that chill in the air and the possibility of rain, it would have probably caused me to be a little distracted. I would be thinking about how miserable it was outside. But Schultz was a professional. He huddled into his coat as he walked about the city. And that coat is going to come into play later on. From all reports, Schultz seemed diligent in his duties. So while it was bound to be an unpleasant and maybe even miserable night, no matter what, he was a man who approached the job with professionalism. He knew that he would have to keep his wits about him and keep his eyes sharp, all the while trying to keep his hands from going numb and becoming too cold with the crisp air swirling around him. Throughout Wilmington's reign of terror, it was noted that Schultz had actually made a number of arrests beyond keeping an eye out for what they called the bandits. He had all of the normal melee that would normally descend upon a city at night, even though one might be thinking what can be done during the night in 1891, cities still had a pretty active population with people who did work at night, as well as people who were frequenting bars. And unfortunately, there were some instant instances, of course, where he had to keep an eye out for people who may have had a little too much and were causing a scene. There were also groups of people who liked to stand on the corners and try to harass people. So he always kept an eye out for that. But as I said before, he was known to be fair but firm. So it was actually described that when he spoke, people listened. They knew that he did not have any idle words. If he said to do something, he expected someone to do it. So when he spoke, people listened. They knew that there would be no pushback because if they did push back against Officer Schultz, that could lead to an arrest. And most of the good, hardworking people of his community really appreciated that as it made them feel safe. And even though Schultz knew that he would have to deal with those normal situations that would show up on any patrolman's route of that day, he also knew that there were people out there who did not hesitate to blow up part of a grocery store in order to get into the safe. Because let's face it, they blew up the safe, which probably also damaged the grocery store. It probably also hit home for him, knowing the people in his community. For one thing, the robbers, or even some of the other criminal element, even if they weren't ones who were actually committing these particular robberies, they probably just thought they were taking from businesses. But most of these businesses were not huge companies. These were small stores owned by members of the community who also then employed other people in the community. So when a store was damaged, it not only damaged the owner, it then damaged his em employees and the community as a whole. And he recognized that and was not afraid to approach each night knowing that he may come across these two thieves. That night, Officer Schultz stopped and he spoke with a member of community of the community named H.W. Evans. 
and he was at the office of William Lee and Sons. Within about five minutes from him leaving Mr. Evans, his whole life would change. He saw two men that he thought looked suspicious, and from the limited information they knew about the robbers from people who may have seen brief glimpses of them, these two men kind of fit that description. So he did walk along the route, staying in the shadows, because remember there were some lights that were out above the houses and some of the pubs, but he also didn't have a quick way to call for backup, to have anybody come help him, or to let anybody know that he had seen two suspicious men. We have to remember then also this was two men against one. Going forward from here, some of the information will be some conjecture based on evidence, such as some things that Schultz did say, as well as looking at his footprints and other evidence that they could trace. But again, some of this is conjecture and at some points may conflict, so I will try to point those out. But even with those small contradictions, the outcome is still the same. Schultz said at one point that night that, quote, I was standing at the corner of Tatnall Street and Elliott Avenue, and two men came along and spoke to me. One of them said good evening, and I replied, end quote. However, there are some reports that say Schultz was the one who said good evening, and told the two suspicious men to raise their hands. Now, if this quote from Schultz was actually, in fact, accurate, it sounds like it was just a brief greeting between them. As far as who said to raise their hands, again, there is some conflict, as I've seen it said that Schultz was the one who said to raise their hands, where... Another said that one of the robbers said to Schultz to raise his hands. I think normally in the course of a night, it would probably be a police officer who said raise your hands, but it was a very different time period back then, so I don't know if he would have really expected a lot of pushback. Plus, he was used to most of the people in the area listening to his commands and following them. But either way, this was an interaction between two suspiciously acting men and an officer in uniform doing his job. Even with that overcoat on that I mentioned earlier, he still wore the helmet of a police officer, so they would have recognized that he was in law enforcement. At this point, when one of them had said to raise their hands, things went downhill very, very quickly. And this, again, is a quote from Schultz that he gave later that evening. He said that, quote, I put my hand around my revolver, but before I got my rubber coat unbuttoned, both men drew revolvers and each one of them fired. As I fell, both men ran out toward Market Street and I fell to the ground. I was too weak to get up and cried for help. That is all I know of it, end quote. Later, Schultz would give a vague description of the men. One was taller than the other, and the taller one shot, and his shot struck Schultz's helmet. The helmet did fall off with a bullet hole through it, but the, the bullet had actually just grazed his head. Also, the shorter one shot at Schultz, and this got him in the stomach. Initially, you might think something to the head would be more dangerous, but as it was just a graze, that was something that would not cause major injury or death. But the one to his stomach, that's the one that we'll talk about a little bit later that was more dangerous and detrimental in the outcome of this case. He staggered along and he was trying to get to the call box on 18th and Market. In doing this, he even passed his own home, which was on West 20th. Again, he's going to 18th and Market. His home was on West 20th, and he walked past that heading towards the call box. I wonder what might have been going through his mind at that time, if he was thinking of wanting to see his family, of trying to look in his children's faces one more time, 
or wondering that if he were to approach the house and go in, would the thieves, the violent men that we now know they were, try to get into the house and in turn hurt his family. So without the aid of a radio or a phone to call for help, he still continued past his house, yelling and hoping that somebody would hear his weakening voice and come to assist him. Now, if you have been a previous listener of the show, you know that I have had a family member in law enforcement who was killed. And one of the things that just always got me is he had a very young daughter at the time, and he was raising her with the help of his parents. And he had such a bright smile. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking of that because with my cousin, I just always felt that above everything, his daughter would never get to hear his voice in person and would never get to hear his laugh laugh or really see his smile. She might have pictures or recordings, but it's not the same. So as I'm reading this, I'm thinking of the same thing. Would some of the younger children, because he had five with his wife, would those younger children really remember what he looked like, what he sounded like? I wonder if in his mind, the voices and the laughter of his little ones and the face of his wife kind of flooded his memories as he was trying to get help. Then a man named George Aiken did hear Schultz crying for help. Upon seeing the stricken officer, he, along with another man that he called over with the last name of Donnell, did help to get him to a doctor's office. There was actually a police surgeon who lived near the 18th Street signal box, so Aiken and Mr. Donnell did get Schultz to Dr. Shortledge's home, and there were a couple things taking place at this time then. Aiken said that Schultz had said to him that, quote, the men spoke and then I fired. If I only had had this overcoat off, I would have been all right. I could not get my revolver out quick enough, end quote. Now that Aiken also knew that Schultz was in good hands, Aiken ran out to his own carriage and went as fast as he could to a police station. But Shortledge, the doctor, did have a phone, probably as being a doctor and a police surgeon at that Um, He had to stay in touch with a lot of different people, so he called the police station as well. So very quickly, there were officers en route to try to assist, you know, as much as they could, with first and foremost, their thoughts being on getting help for their fallen officer. They quickly descended onto Dr. Shortledge's home, and a wagon was called to use really as a makeshift ambulance. He really needed to get to the hospital as quickly as possible. And while he was awake and lucid, his fellow officers tried to gain as much information as they could from him. When trying to get more of a description of the assailants, it was pretty vague. He said that they were, quote, rough, burly fellows. And as far as specifics on each one, he said that one was taller, but that's kind of ambiguous. Um, He also said the taller one was of a medium-heavy build, whereas the shorter one was, you know, more heavily built, possibly stocky. And in some ways, unless they're together, it would be kind of hard to differentiate, okay, would this man be considered stocky to Schultz, or when they're standing next to each other, can you really tell the difference? So it, it was not really a clear description that he could give. But remember that even though there were lights out that night, the lights were not the same caliber that we have today. Um, They would not have been as nearly as bright as what we know. Chief William Swiggett at the time brought in more officers to try to apprehend Schultz attackers and had them spread throughout the city as quickly as possible, getting to the main exit points from the city as well as the train station. In the meantime, Schultz's wife and other family members, including his children, siblings, and a minister, gathered around him, hoping that somehow he would pull through. And if we look at the time frame of 1891, it's really apparent that things are very, very different now than they were then. 
it was increasingly clear that he would most likely not pull through, with, again, the shot to the head not being dangerous, really. It was a superficial graze, basically. But the shot to the stomach had caused a lot of damage. Um, it did appear to have damaged a kidney, which we know is very, very dangerous. But it also perforated his intestines, which led to peritonitis, which is basically an infection of the intestines. And there's a lot of inflammation in the intestines. Even now, it's very dangerous. If there's any type of abdominal injury, the bacteria that lives within the intestines can very quickly cause infection. So in 1891, there really was not a means to treat the infection that took place. They didn't really have the medical know-how and understand how certain things worked. They also didn't have the resources or equipment or the medicines to treat somebody that would have allowed Officer Schultz to survive. When asked if the bullet was still in Officer Schultz, to paraphrase Dr. Shortledge, the bullet was still in there, but they weren't able to locate it. However, the doctor didn't think it would make a difference if they did so as the peritonitis had set in, and from that point, there was really no hope that Officer Schultz would survive. Looking at some of the things that the doctor said, it actually made me think of some of the presidential assassinations. And as I said earlier, a lot of the newspapers referred to the killing of Officer Schultz as an assassination. But I've read and heard that when Lincoln was shot, the doctors could not locate the bullet. Later, when President James Garfield was assassinated, again, the bullet could not be found. And with the lack of medical knowledge at that time, the doctors would use their hands to probe the wound, trying to find the bullet. And we now know that there are tons of germs that live on our fingers, on our hands, Basically, everything that we touch will have some type of germs. So the doctors who were trying to help him basically contaminated the wound. And this led to Garfield's eventual death. Um, he actually lingered for about 11 weeks in that condition. Um, then William McKinley was shot in the stomach as well. And it was hopeful that he would recover, but infection did set in too and he later died due to the injury. So looking at these four total cases, the three presidents and Officer Schultz, just the care and the knowledge that they had at the time, even though they were trying their best, it in some ways for some of them actually helped hasten their death. Now, I don't know a lot of Dr. Shortledge's background, but just from the quotes that he gave, I think he was a very competent doctor of the time period, but again, he didn't have the tools and resources to be able to assist his patient. One would have to wonder if there was a way to x-ray or scan President Garfield, possibly, where the doctors didn't have to try to dig for the bullet. Would he have possibly been able to survive? Those are some questions that you know we can look at when comparing medical practice from then and now. Now, this particular situation was unfamiliar to most of the people of the city, including the medical professionals that tried to help Mr. Schultz. At this time, Schultz was only the third officer who had been killed in the line of duty. And even before Schultz passed away, some newspapers were reporting that he was not expected to make it and saying he was the third officer to die in the line of duty. And that was for the state of Delaware. There was um, another officer who had died um, that was alluded to in one of the articles in Wilmington um, that was trying to break up a domestic violence situation and ended up getting killed during the melee. So we still see that today. So it's really unfortunate that things, it seems like, don't change that quickly. Many of the people of the community probably found it hard 
to understand how someone could cross that boundary from robbing someone to killing a man while he's doing his job. The shooting of Officer Schultz brought to the forefront the idea that even though a city was supposed to have law and order and a large police presence, that wasn't always going to help. Sometimes there would not be enough officers to help to go around and be on duty to have two pairs or have two people in a pair patrolling at all times. There's also always going to be people out there who have contempt, whether it's for authority, for people who may have things that they don't, and they're not afraid to do whatever it takes to get what they want. As the vigil beside Officer Schultz's bedside continue, he began to deteriorate and he really was speaking with some inane words and phrases, so he wasn't making a lot of sense. So those few quotes that he had given before he went to the hospital and just after he got to the hospital were really the only things he had at that time. It was saying that some of the things he was saying, you know, they weren't complete sentences or complete thoughts, but it seemed like he was talking about his family, you know, his wife and his children. And he lingered on for a period of approximately 41 hours. At 5.10 p.m. on Friday, January 30th, he was pronounced dead. Now, newspapers were quick to descend upon the Schultz family home, with one reporter describing the children in a room with their grandmother, and it doesn't say whether it was Schultz's mother or the maternal grandmother, but the reporter talked about the youngest one, who was two years old, though the reporter said she was 12 months, in one of the articles, it said that she was running around her grandmother, not really understanding the gravity of the situation. And that's just kind of a paraphrase of what the reporter was saying. The police chief described Schultz as being reliable and that he had only missed two days of work due to illness in the more than two years that he had been working with the force. He also emphasized that when Schultz was giving reports, he never over-exaggerated anything, so when he gave reports, you knew that they were straightforward, to the point, and accurate, and that was something that the chief seemed to appreciate. Now, this story stands out from those previous two officers who had been killed in the line of duty. Their murders had been solved. Charles Schultz's has never been solved. Now, we've all seen those TV shows or movies when a police officer is killed Every officer rallies together to catch the perpetrator that injured or killed their colleague. It was the same then with every officer coming in to try to locate the perpetrators. But there was really very limited information to go on. One of the newspapers had a quote that said, quote, Only witnesses of this frightful crime were the victim and his assailants. And while the former's lips are sealed in death, the latter have thus far succeeded in eluding arrest, leaving each meager clues as to admit only slight hopes of their speedy apprehension. So pretty early on, it was really thought that this case was going to be very, very difficult to solve. So like I said earlier, all of the exit points to the city and the railroad stations were blocked off pretty quickly. Um, police actually... They just kind of arrested anybody that they found suspicious. We know that that really wouldn't fly today. Just basically they went out and if they thought someone looked suspicious, they arrested them. You know, they kind of had that carte blanche um, order, go out and arrest people. We're going to find out who did this to Schultz. But truly, there were only a few glimmers of hope. And probably the biggest one was that hopefully someone would turn the killers in or if they were arrested on another charge, that there might be some type of clue that would lead back to Wilmington. But at least there were things such as the telephone and the telegraph where Wilmington police did get the word out about two suspicious men and about the murder of their officer, along with any description that they had of the men, which included their heights, their build, and then also that they wore derby hats. One of the tips came from Norfolk, where there were two men that had been arrested and had fit the general description. 
So the Norfolk, Virginia police contacted Wilmington and Chief Swigget went there to follow up and he spent a couple of days there, but he found that there was actually nothing really that they could hold them on. Really, the only thing was that um, one of the men did say that he had been in Wilmington around that time, but that was it. So the chief was kind of in a quandary here. He, pro- I know he wanted to get the the um, assailants and get them arrested, but at the same time, if he arrested the wrong people, then that means the true perpetrators would still be out there and possibly hurting someone, and it could lead to the false imprisonment and probably execution of two innocent men. So Chief Swigert was being very, um, being very cautious. And so he really did not think that he could force the men to go back to Delaware with them. Whereas the Norfolk, Virginia police, they really thought that these were the two men. So there was a little bit of a disagreement between um, the two chiefs about what should be done with these men. Those two men never faced charges. The other lead that they had was possibly from Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. Now, Kennett Square is actually where Officer Schultz had been born. And so that was kind of my first thought that this was very personal to them, I'm sure. He may have still had family that lived in the area. But the day after Schultz was killed, two different men arrived in Kennett Square. They came in at different times, and it just so happened one was taller than the other, which, if you look at the odds, that's not really unusual. Um, they said that they fit the description and that the men at, at least seemed interested in what had happened in Wilmington. One of the men went into a restaurant and ordered some food. Um, when she gave him the breakfast, he said, you know, or asked her, if he had heard about the man who had been shot in Wilmington. She also said that she had seen that there was a revolver that this man had possessed. The people of the town actually then started to look for these two men, and they basically chased them out of town. And they ended up losing them because they saw another man running into the woods, but later that man, because they went after him, When they caught up to him, they actually found that he was a railroad inspector, but he actually told the story that he was accosted by two men who robbed him. So there were a lot of people who had very strong opinions that those in Pennsylvania were the ones who actually had committed the murder. They believed that these men were also spotted in Avondale and... When they were there, it was thought that they did act a little suspiciously, but that they acted most suspiciously when they were in Kennett Square. There were also then many people who thought that they actually had to be from Wilmington because the police had so quickly come to the scene and then blocked off any of the exits. And, you know, again, there were no cars that somebody could just jump into and drive away. If these men didn't always have consistent um, travel accommodations, you know, they didn't have a horse or a carriage, they may not have been able to quickly get out of the town or even get to a train station where a train would be taking off shortly. Because if a train wasn't leaving soon, they would have to wait for that train's scheduled departure. So people thought by the time the police started to kind of scope out the train station, that the men wouldn't have had time to get out of the city. The depravity and the arrogant display against law and order was felt by many of those in the community. It almost felt to them like it was a flagrant disregard towards anyone who was living and trying to make a living in the community. Whether or not Schultz's killers had been the safe crackers, those that were having a reign of terror across Wilmington, you know, whether or not they were one in the same has never really firmly been determined. But regardless, there were two men that had weapons who had no qualms about quickly brandishing them and without any hesitation, 
or so it can be presumed um, as we don't have any witnesses, but they very quickly just shot a man in cold blood. There was no hesitation. So even if they weren't the safe crackers, they were still very dangerous men and definitely up to no good. If they were completely innocent of any crime, their first instinct would not have been to shoot at a police officer. The members of the community could really relate to Officer Schultz. He had two jobs. He was doing everything he could to keep a roof over his family's head, to keep food on the table, and trying to provide for the family that he loved. The story stayed in newspapers for quite a quite a while here. Um, some of the sayings in the newspapers were things such as, quote, the most cold-blooded fiendish murders ever perpetrated in Wilmington, end quote. And as time went by, though, it became more and more clear that not only was there going to be no quick resolution, there probably was going to be no resolution at all to the murder of Officer Schultz. His name slowly started to disappear from the lips of Wilmington residents, and it no longer covered the front page or later the second page, then later the fifth or the seventh page of the newspaper. It disappeared, and as with so many cases, it went completely cold. When Schultz was laid to rest, the funeral procession started actually from his home, which I found a little bit eerie because it was so close to where he was actually shot, and he had to walk by his house to try to get help. So that just... I don't know, that seemed kind of poignant to me. His children, ages 2 to 11 years old, followed the procession. Now, near the very beginning after Schultz's death, his widow Mary was provided with groceries from the city, um, friends, well-wishers, members of the community. Everybody really banded together to help her. And so when she was asked if there was anything that she needed, you know, again, near the beginning, right after he died, she said no. You know, she was set at that point in time. Now, the Gazette, one of the newspapers, did report that she would be getting $500 from the city. I did look through some of the newspapers, and it was a very complicated process, it seems, because for a number of months when there was a summary of a city council meeting, that was brought up each time. So it had to go through a number of different steps to get approved for her to actually get the $500. There were also, you know, other funds that were given, such as a couple of $25 donations, and I'm sure even smaller donations as well that came in to try to support her. And not only monetarily, but probably things such as clothes and groceries, which um, she was receiving from some people around the community. So she may have thought at that time, maybe she would be okay. It was also reported that the police chief gave her $200, but it didn't say exactly where that came from. So I don't know if it was from the department you know, formally, or if it was money that was donated from other officers to help support the family. Looking at um, how much she was given at that time. If we just look at the $500, the $200, and then the two $25 donations that I found, it was about $33.74 per every dollar when we look at, you know, inflation and cost adjustments. So that means she received about $23,700. So looking at it in those terms, it was not really a lot of money. She did struggle. It said that at times she and her children and even some of, um, or one of Charles's sisters who had, he had been helping, they didn't always have a permanent residence. They were really destitute after some time. There was not the formality of even just social security where the children could draw those benefits from their father. And unfortunately, there was not insurance that was held by the city for their officers. At one point, a company named the American Employers Liability Insurance Company did give information to the police department about getting insurance. What they would do is they would provide the police force 
with insurance for each one of their officers, as well as those who kind of worked with the police, such as the men who drove the carts or the wagons who were not technically police officers, those who helped take care of the horses. And so those who were not actually a police officer, but also lent support and may even unfortunately get kind of caught in the crossfire because if you're driving a wagon, even if you're not a police officer, you may end up getting, you know, in the middle of something that you never planned to. So the insurance would provide to these employees of the police um, for eleven twenty-five per person, which at the time, including everybody um, that was rolled into the number, it was a total of fifty-one people, and so that came to a total of five ninety-nine twenty-five. The coverage would be if they were injured in the line of duty, and this would be um, only if they were injured in the line of duty. per week up to one year or 52 weeks. If they were killed in the line of duty, it would be $1,000 for the death benefit. What the company offered to do was normally if people had not used the insurance, which means thankfully they were not injured or killed in the line of duty, then they would get a 20% rebate from the premium amount. So the company said what they would do is take that 20% right off the top. So they would take away 20% from the $599.25 total to try to help out the city in order to make it a little more affordable immediately for them to take out that insurance. Unfortunately, though, there were some questions, at least to me, that were left unanswered, like with that 20%, if someone did have to use the insurance... Would that person's portion have to be refunded? You know, that 20% of their premium that was taken off the top, would they then have to repay that? Um, It also wasn't clear whether or not the insurance would be paid by the city or if it was up to each officer to take out the insurance. They could also increase the coverage by, of course, paying a higher premium, such as we do today. However, I couldn't find whether or not they actually took um, the insurance company up on this offer, even though today we do know that there are much more formal processes when a police officer is injured in the line of duty or killed, and not only a police officer, but anybody who is injured or killed on a work site, there are provisions there to help make sure that their family is provided for. Officer Schultz's grave doesn't have a formal tombstone. However, even more recently, there have been some memorials for Officer Schultz, both on the local level and the national level. In the one source where I mentioned there were a lot of pictures, there are some pictures, you know, again, more from a local area um, for state police officers and city of Wilmington police officers as well as a monument in Washington, D.C. for fallen police officers. And while many of those other cases have been solved, looking at this case more than 130 years on, we know that this will never be solved. So it's very disappointing that those that killed a family man who was just out there trying to provide for the family, that they killed him with no thoughts about what consequences there would be for that officer. They only thought of themselves, and since we don't know who they are, we don't know if they went to other towns and caused the same type of carnage, if they robbed from people who were just trying to make a living and didn't care what type of damage they did to a business or, more importantly, the type of harm that they could bring to a person. But I guess I'm making an assumption there that The safe-cracking thieves, those that blew up a safe, are the same people that killed Officer Schultz. We will never really know that for sure. That assumption has been made throughout time because why else would people have guns readily available and ready to shoot at a law enforcement officer? And we know that earlier that same night, There had been an armed robbery committed by two people that they did assume were the same people who had been the safe crackers. So again, a lot of assumptions there. 
So we could be looking at a mystery or mysteries that have just one duo of assailants, or we could be looking at a number of different crimes that just have different assailants, which in some ways is a lot more scary because that means there's a lot more people out there willing to do harm to others. And like I said in either my last episode or the one before, the more things change, the more they stay the same. There will always be people who don't care about others in their community. There will always be others who don't care about consequences that they bring to others. And even looking at the police officer that was mentioned that had died prior to Officer Schultz and Officer Peterson, he died while attending a domestic violence call. And today, we know that those are some of the most dangerous types of calls for officers to take. So while we're looking at these cases 130 plus years on for Schultz and even longer for Officer Peterson, there's a lot that has not changed. And maybe that's human nature. We can always hope, though, to try to overcome that and try to learn from lessons of the past. It's hard, though, when we see these things happening again and again and again, but that's also one of the reasons we have to keep talking about them, because if they're forgotten, we won't understand that this is something intrinsic in a lot of societies that we have to find ways to combat. So this is the ending of the story for Officer Charles W. Schultz, and it was eerie for me as well to cover some of the story um, just because of the fact that on some mornings um, when I didn't have my car with me in Wilmington, because parking can be quite difficult, um, I would take the bus and I would sometimes walk near Market Street or King. You know, I would take some of the same paths that Officer Schultz would have had to take. Now, I know that the streets were very different then, and just reading through some of those monthly um, meeting minutes that were reported in some of the newspapers, um, Schultz's, um, the coroner's report was read at a meeting where they actually voted to allow funds to pave some of the roads. So, you know, at the time that Schultz was on patrol out there, many of the roads were not you know, paved. They were the rough and bumpy dirt roads that were traveled constantly pretty much because it was the city and people had their carriages, their horses, and they were walking along those streets. So while I stood at the bus stop, though, it could have been a place where 110 years earlier, because I lived there previously, not now, it would have been about 110 years earlier that this officer also stood in that same spot or walked in that same location. And I could just envision, you know, myself walking to and from the bus stop when it was cold outside and kind of, you know, holding my jacket against me and understanding that he would have had to be outside for eight hours straight. And, you know, he couldn't just go into a place to warm up. His job was to patrol his ward and he did so every night. So it just kind of resonated with me, I guess you would say. So before I go, I just also want to um, say I did recognize with some of the numbers of the last couple of episodes that maybe those types um, of episodes weren't as popular as some others. Um, one was the, like, the short stories of the dumb criminals that might just not be my forte because a lot of times those type of shows, whether it be a video um, or any news type story, whether it be written or in a podcast form, those, I admit, have a lot of sarcasm to them. And that's probably not really my strongest point. I can't be as funny, I guess, sometimes going back and re-listening to it and looking at the number. So I will keep that in mind. Um, I may still do some of those types of episodes when we need something a little bit lighter, but I promise I will do my best to bring a little bit more humor to those. 
As far as the last one about the skipjack, um, I do realize I did two skipjack stories pretty close together, so I will try to spread them apart. I just found the second story um, kind of interesting. You know, I found information on that one when I was looking for information about the first story, so I will try to spread those apart a little bit more. And please, if you do have any ideas or suggestions, please let me know. Um, there will be the link with my contact information in the description um, of the podcast. Um, Facebook Messenger is usually the quickest way for me. And you know, I'd really appreciate you know, the feedback or the comments or ideas. So look out for some other episodes coming out this month. And I will talk to you all soon. Bye.